This podcast is an excerpt from the book Path to Navalagala, written by Katrina Mitchell. Episode 1, 1999, Mexico. My legs tense as I sprinted through the grass soccer field in the middle of the night. A thick, four-foot mist hovered over the uncut grass. A man in black chased after me with a hood shading his face so I couldn't see who it was. I was terrified. He was catching up. He was a few feet away when he lunged for me. I jumped in the air and flapped my arms as if I had wings. I definitely didn't have wings. Only my flabby arm fat jiggled up and down as I furiously moved my arms up and down. My body rose in the air a few feet, causing me to miss his arms grabbing for me. I ran faster and flapped my arms, and with every ounce of energy I could muster, my body hovered slowly upward and forward into the air. I continued to flap my arms, and I flew awkwardly, standing straight up facing him as if I was a baby bird flying for the first time. I was about ten feet up in the air when the man stopped running after me. I strained to see his face when the sound in the bedroom I was sleeping in jolted me awake. There were three men in black going through everything in the bedroom. I was disoriented and confused. I yelled out, Desiree, what's going on? A man jumped in the bed and pressed his gun against my chest. He picked me up, dragged me to the next room, and threw me in bed with Desiree and her boyfriend. She whispered to me, We're being robbed. I was in a mansion in an affluent Mexico City suburb that night. Before I tell you about the first time I faced death, I should start by explaining why I was in Mexico City. It's not the beginning of my story, but it's when my life changed forever and put me on a course of redemption. I had joined a small, unknown international university to travel the world and was in my second year of college. Little did I know the adventure and tragedy it would bring, the intense joy and heartbreak. I went to Mexico City in 1999. It was a bustling metropolitan city with some beautiful areas and people, but also filled with pollution, crime, and oppression. It was still the time of the pre, who had held on to power for 71 years until the month I left in 2000 when they surprisingly lost the election to Vince Fox. The city was filled with euphoria and hope at that time, but no one anticipated the rise of powerful drug lords and their brutality against innocent people in the decade to come. Sociologists have long documented this outcome among developing countries throughout the world. Dictatorships create patriarchal structures that are enforced over time. The longer they exist, the stronger they are. When they crumble, the power vacuum is often too strong for the newly elected democratic government to control. Therefore, lawlessness, organized crime ensues with warlords and drug lords taking over. 
Green VW bugs roam the city, reminding me of the TV series Herbie. You would negotiate the price while entering and hope you didn't get robbed or kidnapped. Most drivers were very friendly and tried to understand my broken Spanish. Everyone owning cars was limited on when they could drive. They would have to take a few days off a week to reduce smog in the city. Rich people were able to pay for a permit to drive whenever they wanted to, of course. I often walked around the city or took the clean, efficient metro. I lived with a 60-year-old American hippie woman who was peaceful, wise, and cooked delicious, healthy Mexican food. She had lived on a commune in the U.S. in the 1960s when she met her ex-husband, a famous Mexican chef. He had cheated on her several times and broke her heart. She had had two boys that she cherished, which is probably why she settled in Mexico permanently. She assimilated into Mexican culture and cooked some of the most amazing Mexican food I had ever eaten. We'd spend many golden afternoons in her small kitchen, cooking beans and rice and stews. I diligently listened to her as she explained the importance of a macrobiotic diet. Her home was a welcoming two-bedroom with lots of plants, natural sunlight, and the smell of something comforting on the stove. Yet her life was filled with one tragic story after another. She once told me about her son cheating on his wife and how they got a divorce. Her daughter-in-law was Jewish and left with her granddaughter to live in a kibbutz in the West Bank, which made it very difficult for them to remain in each other's lives. I lived in La Condesa by Chapultepec Park, one of the most charming parts of the city, filled with trendy restaurants, cafes with fresh hot chocolate and churros, and art galleries. My French-style building was four stories with tall ceilings and big, beautiful windows. The street turned into an open-air market every Saturday with fresh offerings for few pesos. The stalls were packed with colorful flowers, fruits, and vegetables. Across the street was the greatest gem of all, the Tortilleria. It was a small room the size of a closet with a machine inside that transformed masa into corn tortillas that melted in your mouth. In the morning, there would be a line with everyone in the neighborhood waiting for their fresh tortillas every day. Now I know that's how tortillas are meant to be eaten. My block in the morning always smelled like a mixture of tortillas, chocolate, coffee, or churros depending on which corner you were standing on. A woman stood on the sidewalk yelling, Tamales! as I peered into her old pink bucket trying to decide between sweet or savory. Chapultepec Park was even more enchanting in my mind. It was an expansive, beautiful park with lots of hills, trees, a large lake, and museums. The 1,695-acre park was one of the largest parks in the world, known as the lungs of Mexico City, since the pollution seemed to disappear there. My first time there, I saw the Valadoras perform. Four guys had ropes tied to their feet, and they walked up a tall wooden pole, twisting the rope around it. Then they jumped off the top, head first, spiraling all down at the same time. It was an ancient Mesoamerican tradition that was breathtaking. 
Later that week, I walked in the park one day when I came across an opera with about a hundred people casually sitting on a hill watching the performers sing. I also saw a version of Swan Lake in the park. Growing up in Southern California, I'm ashamed to admit that I never thought of any part of Mexico as being so cultured and sophisticated. No matter how open-minded we think we are, nothing makes us more aware of our unconscious stereotypes than living abroad. I went to school at a small American university in a five-story French building with high ceilings and detailed carvings inside and out, located in La Zona Rosa. The school had a hundred white elitist rich kids from all over Latin America, but mostly Mexico. I wolfed down delicious tacos every day at the taco cart outside the school's entrance for lunch with Oaxaca cheese, squash buttons, and hilacote, a corn fungus that tastes delicious. Most of the students were scared to eat there, which I thought was ridiculous. I was having trouble fitting in and making friends at the new school. I grew up in the affluent Newport Beach, California, which I thought was elitist, but these people took snobby to a whole nother level. They were excessively wealthy in a city where poverty was rampant, and almost everyone I talked to had been robbed at some point. It was an accepted way of life in Mexico City, and people would tell me, just hope you don't get kidnapped. I felt like an outcast. I had acquaintances, but no true friends. I was in my political science class one morning, staring at the sun shining through the sheer white curtains coming through the eight-foot-high windows. My professor was passionately rambling on about Mexican politics when I caught a boy at the other end of the room staring at me. He looked away suddenly and tried to play it off. I kept staring back, and he looked down smiling. He was short, fit, and had a handsome face with sharp edges. The next day, I was sitting in the common area with some superficial girls talking about something I had no interest in. I was debating if this was better than sitting alone when he walked up and said hi to the girl sitting next to me. He introduced himself as Armando and chatted with us for a while. When leaving, he kissed everyone on the cheek, including me, which was common in Mexico. He gently touched my shoulder, which gave me goosebumps. He asked me out the next week, and we were together shortly after that. He was a Spanish Syrian Jew, and his dad was a rabbi. His family didn't like me much because I wasn't Jewish, and I couldn't speak much Spanish, which didn't help. We explored the city together, but I still felt lonely since he was often busy with his family. One day, I was talking to a freshman in one of my classes when she mentioned that she was Jewish. She said, I had this amazing romance with this guy named Armando over winter break. Really, I said, what does he look like? He's short and cute and important in the Jewish community since his dad's a rabbi. I dumped him later that day. The infidelity of Mexican men seemed to be a theme of my experience, although I know it's not fair to stereotype. I felt as a woman particularly oppressed due to the sexual objectification of women surrounding me at all times. It appeared that women were supposed to be like the Virgin Mary or whores, and there was no accepted combination of the two. It also seemed to be acceptable to yell sexual comments and make 
kissing and sucking noises at women on the street, which disturbed me and made my walk to school uncomfortable. Also, I was particularly frustrated because I had just moved out of La Condesa to a studio so I could have Armando over to my place. It was a shack on a rooftop in a nice middle-class neighborhood. An older couple was renting the shed on top of their row house for cheap. It was a studio with a small kitchenette and bathroom and room for a bed. I had to climb a ladder to get onto the roof, but I enjoyed the beautiful view of the city at night and the garden below filled with green ferns and multicolored flowers. It was before cell phones, so I was excited to have my own landline. The previous tenant said I should put the phone in my name before I go back home for a break, so I went to the phone company to switch it from his name to my name. The only problem was that he racked up a $1,000 phone bill. I hadn't officially moved in yet, so I didn't know. I explained what happened to the landlord, and he wouldn't help me. I pleaded with the phone company to turn the phone back on, but they said I had to pay the bill. My friend said, Next time, don't trust a German Argentinian guy. I kept going back to the phone company and explaining my situation. One day, a woman behind the counter said, In Mexico, you need to handle this on your own. And she discreetly slipped me a paper with his address on it. She said, We have your passport on file, and we do expect the balance to be paid. I sat feeling stressed, wondering, what was I supposed to do? Go Mexico City gangster style on this guy and threaten him? I was feeling down and hanging out with some girls in the common area at school, wondering why life is so cruel when a beautiful model-like girl walked by. The group of girls were talking shit about her. I realized she also had no friends and was an outcast like me. At first, I thought it was weird that such a beautiful girl wasn't loved by everyone, but then I realized that the other girls were threatened by her. I introduced myself, and we were instantly best friends. Desiree was one of the most interesting people I had ever met. She was Clinkin Indian from Whitehorse, Canada, and grew up poor on a reservation. She had mentioned belonging to a gang growing up, and had endured unimaginable hardship being raised by a single mother. She was pristinely beautiful, and had a rich Israeli boyfriend who had recently purchased some new breasts for her. Her dream was to be a Playboy supermodel, and I wanted to be a human rights lawyer. We were an odd pair, but I adored her sassy sense of humor and badass mentality. I'm not sure how she ended up in Mexico or how she met her boyfriend, but he paid for her tuition, lavish lifestyle, and she lived with him in his mansion in the affluent suburbs. She didn't have anything of her own except for lots of expensive clothes, bags, and jewelry. Her savings plan was mostly in diamonds, and she had worked hard for them. We'd go to fancy restaurants and clubs, spending lots of money driving around in her new SUV. We had a blast, but one day she said, I need to pick up more cash for my boyfriend, so I need to go to his office. We drove to Tepito, the most dangerous part of the city, known for its fast open-air market selling illegal items, including guns. We entered a dark parking lot and went to the lower level. We got out and walked through a dark hallway to a steel door with a small sliding window for someone to look through. I thought, damn, these gangster doors really do exist? This is cool. A guy slid it open, glanced at Desiree, and let us in. 
I waited for her in the entranceway. The place seemed empty with only a few chairs. She came out of the back room, stuffed a wad of cash in her bag, and we were off on our next adventure in the city. The following week, we were at her mansion in the suburbs on a Friday evening, deciding what to do. Her boyfriend said, I don't want to go out tonight. I want to observe the Sabbath. We can go out on Saturday night. No, I want to go out tonight. I'll cook dinner here, and we can go grab a drink at my favorite hotel downtown. He begrudgingly agreed. There was lots of drama to catch up on, for example. Desiree had fired her housekeeper earlier that day because she thought she was stealing little things from her. Later that night, I was sleeping in the guest room when I suddenly woke up and saw three men dressed in black in the bedroom. They were going through all the things in the room, and in a panic confusion, I yelled out, Desiree, what's going on? One of the guys jumped in the bed and pressed his gun against my chest, dragged me to the other room, and threw me in bed with Desiree and her boyfriend. I don't know why I had screamed out, but I was glad to no longer be alone. The men were speaking Chilango slang, and I didn't know what was going on. I was confused, with the most intense terror I had ever felt. Desiree whispered to me, We're being robbed. No matter what, we aren't going to let them rape us. Let's agree to fight to the death. Okay. The guys heard us talking and started yelling at us. They put blankets and pillows over our heads and tried smothering us. I thought I was going to die of suffocation. I gasped for breath and someone took their gun and hit me in the head with it. A pillow partially shielded me from the blow and it startled me more than anything. They took Desiree's boyfriend out of the room, and Desiree and I lay in the bed trying to catch our breath. I'm sure Desiree was thinking about them taking her jewelry and how to kill them. I was praying to God that if I get through this alive, I'll dedicate my life to serving others and never do a bad thing again. One of the guys kept trying to touch us and grab us, and we kept squirming away. This went on for a while when the leader came in the room and told him to stop. We came out from under the covers and Desiree and I were staring face to face with the two men. They had guns and were speaking rapidly in a language I couldn't understand. I did recognize the word muerte though. They were debating on whether or not to kill us, especially now that we clearly saw who they were. I just kept praying in my head, staring at them, hoping they would spare us. I didn't cry or beg. I only felt paralyzed with intense fear. One of the men straightened his arms and pointed his gun at us, saying something in slang. I thought, this is the moment I'm going to die. Then the leader reached out and lowered the gunman's arm, saying something to him quietly. The room was dark and they didn't look us in the eyes. They only finished their conversation, tied us up, and locked all three of us in the bathroom. Desiree's boyfriend looked like he had been roughed up, and he was enraged to hear that someone had touched us. It turned out the robbers didn't have anything but knives, and found the boyfriend's guns to hold us hostage. We stood in the bathroom, listening by the door. The house was quiet, as if they had left. We waited for thirty minutes, and then broke out of the bathroom. I prayed, thanking God, we survived when we walked through the house and saw they had gone. We had been held up in the house for at least six hours, which felt like an eternity. 
all of Desiree's valuable possessions had been taken. She was furious and wanted revenge. I was annoyed with myself for not hearing them enter the house or the room. Maybe I could have escaped. Why didn't I wake up sooner? The visit to the police station in the morning was depressing and totally pointless. Their neighborhood had private security, who had to have been in on the job for the robbers to get access to the house. Could the fired housemaid be involved? Desiree's boyfriend said this was God's way of punishing him for going out on a Friday night. While Desiree and her boyfriend were consumed with revenge, I felt elated to be alive. Desiree's boyfriend was far from innocent and probably knew the perpetrators, given whatever illegal business he was involved in. We were the ones living a life of extravagance in a city of vast poverty. The next afternoon, I wandered through the city deep in thought. It was seventy, sunny, and the city seemed quieter than normal. I sat in a beautiful park filled with fountains, roses, and willow trees. The roses next to me were an intense orange, red, and peach color. The tree above was a vibrant green filled with birds chirping. Time seemed to slow down, and I felt like I was on a hallucinogen, where colors seemed brighter and more beautiful than usual. I felt awakened and alive for the first time. I had always felt fearless up until this point, and I understood for the first time how precious life was. It was not something that someone could explain or teach, just something someone could experience, especially while staring down the barrel of a gun. I played this scene over and over again in my head when those guys decided not to kill us. They were just there to rob us and not really hurt us. I was terrified, but felt deep down maybe they weren't evil after all. I honestly had no idea what those guys were thinking. Perhaps they realized a robbery wouldn't be investigated, but the murder of a Canadian and American girl would. I couldn't do anything about what happened, but I could control how I felt about it now. I wanted to focus on the goodness in people and do what I promised God, to live a humble life helping others. In my new awakened state, I thought of one of my favorite books called Siddhartha. The profound story followed the life of a man who achieves enlightenment by understanding Om, the sound and vibration of the universe, and connectedness of all things. He meets the Buddha, but realizes he must follow his own path and accept his own destiny to gain wisdom. He learns from his own suffering and mistakes rather than from spiritual teachings or detachment of the self. My favorite part of the book is the lesson he learns from a beautiful courtesan. At first, he tries to intimidate her and wonders why she doesn't fear him when he could just rape her. She, wise herself, with her own riches and stature, explained that her lips could give sweetness which couldn't be taken. For example, she said, I can take your possessions, but I cannot take your knowledge. She said, I'm a master of the art of love and can bring you great pleasure, but that can't be taken. It can only be given. I pondered the thought for a while. We can't always control what happens to us, but we can control what they take from us. I decided at that moment that I wasn't going to let those guys take anything from me. I wasn't going to dwell on it, feel sorry for myself, or let it hurt me. I felt eternally grateful to be alive and focused on my new awakening. 
I was 19 years old, and I didn't know much about Mexico City, but it would change me forever. It was rumored that 30 million people lived in the city and its surrounding areas, many in shanty towns. It contained many of Latin America's most impoverished people who stayed for a short time trying to make it to the U.S. At that moment, everything in life felt trivial, and I didn't really know what my place was in this big city. I never saw Desiree again after that night. We lost touch, and years later I tried to find her online, but she was nowhere to be found. I also didn't return to school and went back to California to the safety of my ex-boyfriend's bed. I didn't want to sleep alone. I had developed a newfound heightened awareness of my surroundings and never slept deeply again. This podcast is a production of Cultural Junkie Press and an excerpt from the book Path to Navalagala, written by Katrina Mitchell. Thank you to Arsenio Dev for the music and Caitlin Tortorisi for lending her voice to this episode.